I, me bring I think... in, uh, let me bring in our guest, uh, Harold Meyerson. He's an uh, editor at large at the American Prospect. Uh, Harold, uh, these are all folks who have various labor radio shows or labor podcasts. Um, so we're, we're very happy to have you on. And, and uh, we were just talking about how uh, uh, Donald Trump has managed to uh, convince a whole lot of union members uh, what a friend of the working class he is, uh, something which I believe you have written about. So <laughs> well, enlighten us. To, to a certain extent he has, and, and to a certain extent, since labor union members are people first, uh, a, a lot of his appeal is in some ways non-economic. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, in many ways, uh, one of the defining events of, uh, of, of modernity was when uh, the working classes of Europe, which had pledged solidarity to one another, nonetheless sided with their nations and went to war against each other in 1914. Uh, and that shows the resilience of a kind of uh, uh, us versus them identity politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that has been Trump's primary appeal to many of his supporters, some of whom are union members. Uh, and. Uh, you know, that's the sort of thing which uh, unions have worked to uh, combat and educate and oppose. But, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's a continual struggle. You, uh, you sent me your, your latest piece today with your predictions. You, I, I need you to share this with the rest of our, our folks here. Uh, I, you know, your, your lips to God's ears, but you're, you're, you're throwing up some pretty impressive numbers. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps insanely optimistic. <laughs> uh, I, I think the, uh, over time, the historic narrative here is that the Republican Party, pre-Trump and during Trump, has basically uh, had an electoral strategy that was a, a Southern strategy, a Sunbelt strategy. Mm -hmm. And the Sunbelt and the South are not, uh, you know, uh, that closely, they, they do not closely resemble uh, the South of 1968 when Nixon invoked that strategy or 1980 when Ronald Reagan profited by it. It's much more racially diverse uh, it has a higher percentage of college-educated voters, uh, and uh, we're, we're beginning to see real changes there. I think uh, it's as likely as not that Trump will uh, lose Georgia. And what I'm particularly fascinated by is Texas, uh, mm -hmm. which is a state where uh, the early vote total before any other state surpassed the total vote total in 2016. Um, that mainly is coming in from metropolitan areas, from cities that are heavily democratic, uh, and from suburbs that are increasingly democratic. You know, if, if, if the Republicans lose Texas, not to mention Florida, it's game over. Right. And it's not just game over for Trump, uh, because the Republicans have been relying on this strategy, which there's a kind of baseline of white supremacy, which is, you know, not usually broadcast loudly, though it's been broadcast very loudly by Donald Trump during his presidency and during his campaign in 2016 and since then and even before that. Um, you know, uh, I don't think uh, a party whose chief appeal is preserve America for the whites uh, is going to have the same kind of appeal in the Sun Belt that it has historically had in the past. 
So let me open it up to some of my colleagues here. I have a ton more questions, but I'm going to uh, to yield to them. I forgot to ask for a show of hands, but uh, actually, uh, Gene, uh, he was just uh, referencing your state. Uh, comment or, or question? You can, you can tell Gene because he's got the uh, the hat. <laughs> I can see. I can see. He looks like a Texan. He does. <laughs> well, we've done we've done we've been done progressively. We're having a sound issue with that gene there. In Texas for the last one. But we can't predict anything because we've never done an election in a pandemic. So we don't really, we don't even know if all the early voters were Democrats. Although that's what the pundits keep telling us, but nobody in the labor movement here in Texas is taking anything for granted. We're just keeping continuing to work right down to the wire. Good. <laughs> Uh, and while we're in the Texas thing, uh, uh, Harold, I'd love to get your take on this. I think just, you know, I mean, in, in, in it's hard to rank all of these, but this brazen attempt to disqualify, what, 126,000 votes can, can just break that down. And, and I mean, this is, this is, you know, broad daylight robbery, right? Well, it was so broad daylight that the uh, state Supreme Court, which <laughs> is entirely Republican, right. Uh, dismissed it, and then it went to a Republican federal judge who also dismissed it. Uh, I, you know, th this this gives one hope that Republican judges have a minimal, have at least a minimal standard of not being outrageously both illegal, ridiculous, immoral, etc. Uh, so let us hope that that minimum standard uh, uh, continues. But but it, it, it's a mark of uh, you know the electoral desperation of the Republican Party which for years since Goldwater has been a party that was opposed to minority rights. And as, it, it's, as it's become a minority numerically itself, it's now also a party opposed to majority rule. That doesn't, that doesn't leave much for a governing doctrine. Uh, let me ask you, and I'm sure other folks are gonna to wanna to jump in too, but you know, uh, obviously labor's been pushing hard for Joe Biden um what's what you know you've been around for a minute what's what's your i mean what is is uh, president biden going to be the best thing since sliced bread for uh, the you know the working class in america well you know uh if we grade him on a curve <laughs> he is certainly more pro-union i think than the last three democratic presidents okay. than jimmy carter than bill clinton and then Barack Obama, uh, none of whom really pushed that hard for labor law reform. Uh, and, you know, I think Biden, uh, partly simply by virtue of kind of where he grew up and, and you know, that sort of thing, has a, a little more union DNA in his bones than, uh, than his Democratic predecessors. And I, I, they've been, you know, also changes in public opinion. I mean, in the latest Gallup poll, unions had a, uh, an approval rating of 65%. Right. That's higher than it's been uh, in decades. And believe me, 65% of the American people are not Democrats. That reaches out to, you know, some Republicans. Uh, people are beginning to get that the levels of economic inequality that we have are ridiculous. Uh, so it, it's a combination of, you know, where Biden is at, but where the public is at, uh, and, and that matters. And it matters that, you know, millennials and Gen Zers uh, are more progressive on economic issues, perhaps, than any generation 
in American history. So, you know, it's a combination, as with Roosevelt, it's a combination of the man and the moment. And uh, both of them, I think, are, are fairly propitious. We're talking with Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large at the American Prospect magazine. Evan, I think you had a question or a comment. Yeah, Harold, I love the American Prospect. I uh, get it in my inbox daily. I think Bless I you. subscribe. <laughs> and you have some of the best writers. And uh, you're ahead of the curve oftentimes uh, on news coverage. Uh, my question is, going into the next administration, assuming that Biden's going to win, that the Democrats are going to have the House and Senate, how pro-union are Schumer and, and Nancy Pelosi? And how do you push them harder? Because even if you have Biden there, I think Schumer's a creature of Wall Street, and I think Nancy Pelosi is a, a creature of the Silicon Valley interests, the Paul Pelosi interests, also Wall Street interests. And I'm not really clear how favorable and supportive they are to labor. Well, you know, labor isn't, uh, isn't the Bernie people. Uh, labor is more part of the democratic establishment. My worry is, uh, you know, my worry is it would be an art of, uh, a byproduct of democratic success if we start winning Senate seats in states like Georgia. Um, you know, uh, can you count on those folks uh, to back really ambitious labor law reform and, and, uh, uh, and that sort of thing? If you remember um, earlier attempts at labor law reform in, in the Clinton administration and the Obama administration and the Carter administration, uh, pa all passed the House and never made it past the, the, the Senate where there was the 60 vote threshold because Southern Democrats uh, who existed at that time in the Senate uh, were opposed. Uh, I, I remember a, a retrospective discussion with uh, <coughs> Tom Donahue who had been the Secretary Treasurer of the AFL-CIO under, under Lane Kirkland, better, a better guy than Lane Kirkland, and I do not mean to damn him with faint praise by saying that. Uh, and, um, you know, we were talking about what, what could you uh, do different? Uh, and uh, he said, well, let's uh, not make Arkansas a state because the two Democratic senators from Arkansas in all three iterations of labor law reform efforts had all voted no. Um, uh, so first of all, you know, nothing's going to pass. It's any decent unless the Democrats get their act together to get rid of the filibuster, uh, which is one more, you know, uh, blockage point for any progressive legislation. Uh, then, you know, between the Joe Manchins and whatever, uh, yeah, uh, it's going to be uh, a push. But I don't think the main push will be against Schumer and Pelosi. I think the main push will be against, uh, if they're Democratic senators like Joe Manchin, notwithstanding, you know, the heroic union heritage of West Virginia, which unfortunately is not what West Virginia is today. So it's my two cents on that. Patrick? Hi, Harold. This is Patrick Dixon from Labor History Today. 12 years ago, supposing it plays out as you predicted, 12 years ago, uh, the Democrats controlled each chamber and the presidency. And I remember many similar discussions about how irrelevant the Republican Party seemed to be. We know how the Republican Party responds to progressive legislation. They'll describe it as communism. They'll describe it as socialism. They'll say that we're going to Venezuela. And yet, as absurd as that seems to be, uh, in 2010, that convinced some people and it hamstrung 
uh, the entire remaining six years of the Obama administration. Do, do you think the Democrats have learned lessons from them and how, how, why should we be sort of confident that it would be different this time? I'm not saying we should be confident, uh, but I do think it'll be different if they get rid of the filibuster, because look, the Democrats are not gonna have 60 senators, no matter how good uh, the election turns out to be. Um, you know, I mean, had there not been the 60 vote threshold, uh, in the Senate, this stuff would have, you know, labor law reform, the previous iterations of which are not as good as what the House under Pelosi has already passed in the PRO Act and certainly not as good as Biden's labor platform, which has some things that go beyond the PRO Act, chiefly uh, uh, getting, uh, getting, rid of, uh, getting rid of Section 14B of the Taft-Hartley Act, which is right to work. Um, uh, you know, had there not been a 60 vote threshold in the Senate, uh, stuff would have gone through then, which, which didn't. So I think that's one ground uh, for potential optimism if, and it's a very big if, the Democrats can get rid of the filibuster. The, the other issue is what I alluded to in the change in public opinion. Uh, you know, uh, in, in 2009, people knew the economy was really screwed up. But the, the notion that it was sort of structurally screwed up uh, wasn't that widely shared. Right now, particularly among young voters who have seen a recovery which largely left them behind after 2008, and then seen the dislocations of the pandemic and how that's intensified economic inequality, um, you know, I, I think now uh, there's greater public sentiment uh, for, for lasting change. And I put more stock in that perhaps than, uh, than anything else. Uh, yes, this is not something Wall Street wants, uh, but uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I think there's gonna be more push from our side now than there was in, in 2010, than there was in 1994, than there was in 1979. Harold has a question and I think uh, Evan will give Evan the final one. Harold, I know you, uh, <laughs> Harold. Phillips has a question for Harold Meyerson, just to keep my Harold straight here. Hi, Harold. Harold. Um, yeah, uh, Harold, uh, co-host of Working to Live in Southwest Washington. So, Harold, we've been talking a lot about the Democratic Party and Democratic politics. I think it's important to remember that there are union members and working class people who do identify as Republican. And uh, as you came on, we were having a conversation about how we reach out to those people, how we try to get them to move forward from this moment. What's your take on that? What is the path forward for working class people who identify as Republican to get beyond, I hate the term Trumpism because I think it's overly simplistic, but to get beyond this way of thinking so that they can actually jump into that boat that a rising tide lifts? Well, uh, it's been a long time since a rising tide lifted all boats. Uh, the standard line, which is trite, and I'll say it anyway, because it's true, is that our rising tides of the last, you know, four or five decades have lifted the yachts and that's it. So, you know, the Democrats need to produce a rising tide that lifts all boats. Otherwise, I don't know why these people would climb aboard. Why would you climb aboard a boat that's just sitting there or worse yet, sinking? Uh, that's the, you know, in theory, that is our value added, that, that we, and I don't, I'm referring specifically to Democrats, 
but that unions and progressives uh, can produce that kind of rising tide. And that was, you know, that's what under, underpinned the New Deal coalition uh, for uh, 30 years after World War II. Uh, once that stopped in the mid-1970s, uh, it began to fall apart. It partly began to fall apart because of issues of race and racism. But, you know, uh, the, really the failure of Democrats to address what used to be considered the party's base, which was working class America, uh, has been going on for decades. And until, you know, we prevail to get the Democrats to do that, we're, you're going to, you and people like you are going to be asking this question. I'm going to be asking this question. Not just people named Harold will be asking this question <laughs> for a very long time. So, uh, you know, as soon, if Biden wins, you know, we have a clear path ahead of us that we have to, uh, you know, push, push the party and push the nation uh, onto uh, if, if we're ever going to stop worrying about exactly the sort of thing uh, you asked about. And before we let you go, I think Evan had a quick follow-up. And I know American Prospect has covered this a little bit, but the Federal Reserve is the greatest credit creation in the history of the world. And it's just proven itself again over the last six months with over $6 trillion. And they started doing overnight repo loans of over $100 billion a night way back in September 2019. So there was already problems in the banking system before COVID hit. And what we need is Biden to get on the phone and maybe it's Jerome Powell or maybe it's someone else who's, who's going to be the new Federal Reserve chief and allocate money to the region, regional banks to then go to the states to then rebuild our infrastructure that can bring in union jobs. And I'm just wondering if, if Biden's going to be that, that person and, and how we can organize and push Biden to move the Federal Reserve credit, not to Wall Street, not to, to help monetary banking, but to actual credit and federal lending to the states, just like FDR. And the whole country is bankrupt in the 1930s and they somehow figured out how to pay for it through a Federal Reserve system. We can do it again. We have the blueprint. We just need to do it. I, I don't know if Biden would do that. What I do know uh, is his commitment to a substantial public investment generally uh, and remember, you know, a lot of what Roosevelt did went through this institution that Hoover created called the Reconstruction Finance uh, uh, Administration. And uh, uh, they provided capital for all kinds of things, uh, public works, uh, uh, you name it. It was kind of, it, it wasn't a bank, but it was uh, kind of a, a public agency which in some ways functioned as a bank, but didn't really expect repayment. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, th there's been some uh, stuff coming out of the Roosevelt Institute and other think tanks about uh, restarting something like that. It was run by a rather conservative banker, but, you know, a lot of the public employment and public works of the 1930s got their funding from that. Um, I don't know if any of the ec economists around Biden really have focused that much on the Fed. There's one Fed uh, board member, Sarah Bloom Raskin, who would be very good on this. It would be nice to see Biden, uh, when Jerome Powell's term is up, appoint her ahead of the Fed. That would be a partial way of getting to what, Evan, you just, uh, you just talked about. So we shall see. 
Harold, I really appreciate you being on. I would be, uh, I can't let you go without mentioning that, you know, this network of over 70 labor radio and podcast shows, uh, which is the first ever of this sort of network, would be a great article in the American Prospect. Just, just saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, something that we would be happy to come on as well as write about. All right. We appreciate your time, Harold. Thank, thanks, Chris. Take care. The great American okay. prospect and uh, Alan will put a link in the uh, Facebook feed there so that everybody can find out uh, and uh, Alan put Harold's most recent column I really like the numbers that Harold put up yeah well I mean you know they could be obsolete in an hour but uh, uh, so you either put them up now or never okay all right <laughs> okay bye-bye take care